Hey, this is Steve from the Something for Nothing podcast, and you're listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colburn, and we are ready to talk Rush. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Joining me tonight as guest curator is the co-host of one of my favorite Rush-centric podcasts, Steve from the Something for Nothing podcast. Steve, thank you so much for joining me tonight, man. Thanks so much for inviting me, Brian. It's my pleasure, and I'm very excited. Well, I always like to ask my first-time guests this question. Steve, what does the word mixtape mean to you? Well, mixtape brings me back to my days as a teenager when I first got a CD player and I didn't have a CD player in my car. So what I would have to do is make cassettes of my CDs. And in Rush's case, honestly, I don't think I've ever made a Rush mixtape. Really? Yeah. I always like to listen to Rush albums in their entirety. Oh, so okay. I would take my Memorex tape and I would just dub the entire album off. But other bands where I just liked a song or two, I would make a mixtape for myself. But I also don't think I've ever made a mixtape for another person. Wow. Which is interesting. So I've never made a Rush mixtape before. This will be the first time and I can't wait to do it. Well, tonight we're talking about a topic that's sure to bring up some spirited debate amongst Rush fanatics, because you and I are going to try to whittle down 167 songs, possibly more if you want to even count live tracks, <laughs> down to 20. And considering Rush has 19 albums, you'll only be able to go back to the well one time if we were trying to cover every album in the band's catalog, which in and of itself could become a hot topic for Rush fans. So as someone who has dedicated many, many hours into this incredible band, how hard was it for you to come up with a bank of songs tonight that's, I don't know, let's start with less than 166 songs. <laughs> it's nearly impossible because I have a list here of about 20 songs that I would like to get to. I figured 20 is probably enough, but I thought of 20 other songs that I wanted to get to. I mean, there's so many songs you could put in a Rush playlist and not be wrong. Coming from someone who has such a love and admiration for this band, you know as well as I do that no matter which way we approach this, from the first pick all the way to the last, there's going to be questions from other Rush fans all along the way. The thought process of album selection, track selection. I mean, there is no way to do a one-size-fits-all Rush mix, because if I was going to introduce somebody to Rush, I don't know if there were certain songs I would start with, because I feel like you need to wet people's appetite a little bit. Right. And there's certain songs that I feel fit that mainstream discussion, almost the gateway drug, if you will, musically. Right. Come on in, the water's fine, listen to these songs, and then start to really bring some of the heavier progressive side of the band into the fold. Because I feel like if you start with certain songs, you might scare people away before they could truly dive into the greatness that this band has to offer. I've got two questions before we get started, Brian. Sure. Number one, who is this mixtape for? Our listeners 
Ooh, well, the way I would describe it is we are trying to create a mixtape that would please both hardcore fans of the band and people that don't know a single song from Rush. And I'm not sure if there's many people that are in that list, but something for everybody. Okay. My second question. Now, when I got a Memorex tape, it was maybe 45 minutes on each side. Do we have a time limit on each side? And that that is key when you're talking about Rush. The beauty of this show is because we embrace modern digital times, a playlist has no time limit. So that is the one thing. Plus, I also <laughs> wanted to make sure I wasn't spending 30 minutes per episode trying to add all the times together like I did right. when I was a kid and then realizing at the end of the side, I was off by 15 seconds and I just chopped off the end to La Villa at the end of my side of my cassette. So I don't want to have that happen tonight. All right, great. I don't have to scratch any songs off my list then. <laughs> well, let's get down to business tonight. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Steve and I will be curating what we feel is the ultimate Rush mixtape, and we're going to use the old cassette deck approach. Steve, as my special guest, will begin Side A with his first song choice, and then I'll add a song that I feel best follows up that choice. We'll then flip-flop choosing songs until we've mapped out 10 songs for Side A. We'll then give our mixtape a proverbial flip, and we'll map out side B, only this time I'll kick things off with Steve choosing second. Our overall goal for this episode is to craft the best Rush mixtape possible through only 20 songs. At the end of the show, you can take our conversation to the next level by visiting the episode page at myweeklymixtape.com to give our final mixtape a listen via the embedded playlist. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. And a few of the Patreon mixtapers chimed in with songs that they would use to kick off a Rush playlist, and I want to give a shout-out to a few of those. Sean Faust actually took a double-sided approach to his song choices, going with The Spirit of Radio for casual Rush fans and Cygnus X1 for diehards. Wow, that's a good one. Yeah. Cactus Pete chimed in saying that the spirit of radio was too easy to use first, so he's going with Far Cry from 2007's Snakes and Arrows. Another good one. Yeah. And Ben from the Too Vague podcast chimed in with subdivisions because, and I quote, you know how I love my synths. <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So, Steve, with that musical thought out in the atmosphere, I'm officially pressing the record button on our mixtape, and the floor is yours. Why don't you dive into the song that you're choosing to kick off Side A? Well, it's interesting, Brian, that you mentioned Gateway Drug, because this song is a lot of people's gateway drug into Rush, and your mixtaper who mentioned the casual fan would like the spirit of radio, the casual fan would also agree with this, and it's Tom Sawyer, of course. You have to start with Tom Sawyer, don't you? Rush's best-known and most iconic song, and honestly, no Rush mixtape would be complete without it. No matter how many times I hear this song, I never tire of it. Rush fans who are more diehard might tell you, hey, that's for casual fans. Shouldn't have picked that one. But how could I not Ooh. pick Tom Sawyer, right? I mean... The song made VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of Hard Rock list. It is one of five songs inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame from the band. Mm -hmm. The song is absolutely iconic. And at the same time, I'm forever blown away that Tom Sawyer was not a top 40 hit. Considering how many times I heard that song on the radio growing up. Mm -hmm. I was shocked when I learned later in life that it was not a top 40 hit for this band because you couldn't escape it in the 80s. Rock stations, top 40. I mean, this song crossed over. And that, I think, might be the reason why some Rush fans kind of raised their nose out of it a little because of the fact that pop culture kind of embraced right. it and took it into movies and commercials and, you know, remixes. There's different hip-hop bands that have have rapped over the song. I mean, this song is used everywhere, and I think maybe that might be one of the reasons why people feel that way, but it's one of the best album openers ever. I, don't, I just I don't see how this can't work. And Neil's drumming on this song is so difficult. Neil famously said that he never tired of playing the song exactly because of that, because it was so difficult to play. It was a challenge for him every time. And I'm sure Getty and Alex felt the same way. And every show Rush had from the day that album was released until the end, they played Tom Sawyer. And how could you not? 
I completely agree. And I'll also say it's one of those deceptively complicated drum beats. Obviously, the fills that he does towards the end Mm -hmm. are extremely hard. But just the beat in the middle, the stuff he's doing on the hi-hat, the stops and the little syncopation things that he does with the drum beat is ridiculously hard to play. I won't even attempt it. I am a novice drummer, but I've talked to other drummers and they say it's deceptively complicated. Oh yeah. And it's also one of the few Rush songs that was co-written by a non-member of the band, Pi Dubois. Do you know the other two Rush songs that were co-written by Pi Dubois, Brian? Oh, you're hitting me with <laughs> Rush knowledge that honestly, I would. this would be the $1,000 question on Jeopardy that I would have to phone a friend, even though that's two different game shows. But regardless, I now I want to know, what are the other two? Force 10 from Hold Your Fire and okay. a real deep track from Counterparts called Between Sun and Moon. Another great song. Really? Yeah. Wow. All right. Well- you struck my heartstrings by going with an album opening track because I'm a sucker for album opening tracks. So I think to follow that up, I'm going to go with a second album opener and I'm going to blow this thing right out of the water because you went with something that was the gateway drug. And instead of trying to ease them in with more gateway songs, I'm just going to throw them right into the deep end. And that is with the entire first side because it is one CD cut and it is one song on streaming. So as far as I'm concerned, it is one song because one should never drop the needle at the beginning of 1976's 2112 and pick it up in the middle of it and go, I'm going to flip it over and go to a passage to Bangkok. No, you play the entire song. 2112 is a masterpiece. And I feel like coming out of Tom Sawyer, it's kind of the perfect transition into some of the deeper progier stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight. And I mean, it's just an epic masterpiece. Attention all planets of the solar Federation. We have assumed control for 20 minutes and 33 seconds, the longest song in the rush catalog. So this might be a tough one to punch for novice rush fans, but trust me, if you get past track one and two on this playlist, you're now a rush fan. Yeah. And that's why I'm going with 2112. Absolutely. 2112 was my gateway drug to Rush. I mean, that was the first Rush song I ever heard. And I was completely blown away. Two things on this song. First of all, the record company, I don't know if you know this, Brian, but the record company wanted Rush to write hit singles for this album. <laughs> and instead of doing that, they decided, screw that. We're going to do whatever we want to do. And not only did they not write hit singles, They made this song the entire first side of the album, and they started it out with space sound effects. Can you imagine if you're the record company exec listening to this album and saying, what? Normally, (laughs) when bands would go with these epic tracks, I think of Inagata DeVita by Iron Butterfly as a reference. They usually started side A with a bunch of shorter songs, and then the second side was dedicated to the massive track Mm -hmm. and rush did the reverse of that. And honestly, I don't think as much as I love a passage to Bangkok, I friggin' love that song. I don't think you can open 2112 with any other song besides if I don't hear the opening to overture, I don't feel like I'm getting the true 2112 experience. And the other thing about this song, the musicianship, as you said, is incredible. But the thing that stands out for me, believe it or not on this song 
Argetti's vocals, if you listen to the presentation section, the part where the protagonist brings the guitar to the priests, Getty's doing two parts. He's singing the protagonist lines, very beautiful and kind, and then he starts ripping in to the vocals when the priest began speaking, and it's just incredible how he goes back and forth and just makes Neil's lyrics come to life. Have you ever heard 2112 on the radio? I don't believe I ever have. One time, <laughs> and, and they cut it off right before Discovery. And I'm like, why'd you bother? Like, you just wasted my time because now I have to turn off the station. <laughs> I've heard Overture and Temples of Syrinx, and usually that's where they cut it off. They cut it off. And to right. me, that's not playing 2112. You're wetting my appetite. You're teasing me. Play right. the rest. <laughs> right. All right. Well, we're back to you now to follow up both Tom Sawyer and 2112. Where are you going to take this? Well, uh, we're in the proggy section of this Rush mixtape, so I'm going to stick with that and go with Xanadu from 1977's A Farewell to Kings. Now, this is Rush at their prog rock best. Neil's drumming, and especially all the percussion stuff he does with the drums at the beginning, five minutes of just lead-up to this crescendo that begins Xanadu, and it's amazing. And a fun fact about this song, Brian, is they recorded this studio version 11 minutes in one take. This was Insanity. the first take. Can you imagine playing Xanadu in one take? One, I couldn't imagine playing it, period, <laughs> because it is so complex. But the fact that they did this in the studio, like, let's just give it a run through. Right blows my mind like if this was a four chord charlie and they just happen to hit the magic on it mm -hmm. even that's impressive enough there's a lot more charlies in this song than four let's just say oh yeah oh yeah absolutely and it was a live staple i mean when rush played xanadu live the crowd went bananas and i've seen them do it numerous times and every time it was fabulous and the light show howard ungerleader was the lighting director for rush and he did a masterful job, not only for every song, but especially this song. And it was always a memorable live show, too. One thing that I love about Xanadu is the fact that it's the first Rush song to truly incorporate synthesizers as an integral piece mm -hmm. to the sound. So people that are fans of signals and subdivisions, you don't get there without 1977's A Farewell to Kings. And kind of Xanadu was the catalyst for that. And to me, I think that makes it an important piece to the Rush story. Yeah, and, you know, they're a progressive rock band, and they were always progressing. They were always building on the previous record. They could have easily gone out and put out another 2112 or another Caress of Steel, but they wanted to do something different. And every single record was a progression. It was the same thing when... When they did hemispheres, they did more keyboards. They did more proggy stuff. And then they just kept adding to it every year until you get to Power Windows, which is loaded with synths, right? A hundred percent. Now, following that up, I'm actually going to take a cue from the part we just talked about, that Xanadu was kind of a career-defining song for Rush. And I'm going to follow it up with one that I feel is also a career-defining song, but might change the vibe a little bit to give you something to bounce off of. Okay. 
And like I said, I'm a sucker for album openers. So when you bring a strong one, you've grabbed my attention for the rest of the album, no matter what it is. And I love Fly By Night. And I, I want to follow it up with Anthem because it's the first Rush song on album to feature Neil on drums. And it was the song that Getty and Alex played with him as his audition. So to me, this song defines the transition from John Rutsey to Neil Peart in the band all in one song. So I feel like it's an important piece of the band's history. And on top of all that, it's just a kick-ass song. I mean, it's awesome. Absolutely. And Rush always had the best album openers. I mean, you could take any album and the first song is incredible. And like you said, this is Neil's introduction to the Rush fans. I mean, what a song to start with. I mean, he was crazy, not only in this song, but on the whole album. And the amazing thing is Neil didn't feel like his work on Fly By Night, pretty much everything up until Moving Pictures, was great. He felt like Rush began with Moving Pictures, which is incredible to me because I think his drum work on Fly By Night is some of his best work. And he was only, what, 22 years old? It's astonishing when you... Think about people who are considerably a master of their craft. And I'd like to throw back to the Van Halen episode I did a few weeks ago with Eric Senich from the Van Halen News Desk. And we were talking for a good while about how Eddie Van Halen feels like he screws up at the beginning of Eruption. I've listened to Eruption 10 million times. I've never heard a mistake in that song, but to Eddie, there was a mistake right. in that song that he felt like that song was not indicative of the guitar player that one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. And he felt it was subpar. And it's the same mindset that Neil had with some of his rush tracks, because I mean, come on, listen to these songs. This is game changing drumming happening. I understand that there was a lot of stuff going on in Prague at the time in, in the world of Genesis and stuff like that. This is another level. And as you could hear throughout the 70s output, they just kept pushing that bar farther and farther to what can possibly be done. And I think it speaks volumes for the talent that this trio brought, because some of these songs are so complex. You just mentioned Xanadu in the last track. 11 minutes, one take. Right. Anthem, an audition track. I mean, in my brain, I've always wondered what it would have been like if John Rutsey continued through the entire Rush career. That's a good question. We've talked about that on our podcast before, and it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think Rush would have been Rush without Neil Peart. They would have been a completely different band. Yeah. I think they would have went more down the bluesy, I don't want to say Led Zeppelin sound, but I hear elements of that in Rush's self-titled album, that kind of blues, hard rock bass. I don't think the progressive would have been as pronounced, let's just say. It's not a knock on John Rutsey at all, but I don't think the band no. would have lasted as long if he had stayed in the band. And honestly, I don't even know if it's a point that we could even argue because Getty and Alex were going in this progressive direction, whether John Rutsey was going with them or not. And that's the reason that John ultimately ended up leaving the band because Getty and Alex wanted to go in this direction and John didn't. Unbelievable. Uh, now it makes me wonder what 2112 and Xanadu would have sounded like. 
I can't picture it. I simply can't. Yeah, they wouldn't have existed, really. Well, Steve, we're back to you now for track five. You know, you going with Anthem sent me off in a completely different direction because this is a mixtape. I want this next song to kind of flow well from Anthem. And strangely, I'm going to go all the way to the end of Rush's career to Clockwork Angels because they sort of went full circle with their sound. And I feel like this next pick is similar in sound to Anthem, believe it or not. And it's Headlong Flight. Ooh, okay. I'm going to shout out to my podcast co-host, Jerry. This is one of his favorites. And we like to call it the rushiest Rush song ever recorded. (laughs) First of all, what other band goes out with an album as great as Clockwork Angels? Can you think of another band that had an album, which was their final album, which was as good as Clockwork Angels. It's hard. I have several tracks from this album in my bank of songs. And most people, if you talk about bands' last albums, it's usually met with a, well, at least we had something kind of vibe. Like, it's better than nothing, but not by much. Clockwork Angels was an album that contended with all the other rock albums that year. And here these were guys that were decades behind them and they could have easily phoned in anything, but they go out with a powerful statement that even borderlines on some of the heaviest stuff they've ever done. I will say. Yeah. And I could have picked pretty much any song off this record, but this particular song has everything killer guitar riff, fantastic bass line, the drums are in your face and the lyrics stand out to me because they kind of mirror Rush's journey. It's kind of wrapping up their journey. I wish I could live it all again. And I'm sure Getty, Alex, and Neil felt that way. But also saying, I would never trade tomorrow for today. So they wouldn't give up all those memories that they had either. And this is just a fantastic Rush song from back to front. Could not agree more. And I think I know what I'm going to follow it up with. And I'm going to challenge you by saying that to me, While it was recorded and released in 2012, I don't feel like Clockwork Angels is truly (laughs) their last album because Vapor Trail's remix in 2013, to me, was the true definitive version of Vapor Trail's. Okay, I agree. I was joking by saying that Clockwork (laughs) Angels wasn't their last album. But to me, when I think about when did Vapor Trails truly start becoming a part of my constant rush listening was after I heard the remix. And to me, I'm a sucker for album opening tracks, so I'm doing it again. I got to go with one little victory. The first time since 1975 on Caressa Steel, where the band did not use any keyboards or synths in the song which by nature made the song sound heavier and bigger but the fact i love in this song is they just layered the guitars and bass and drums to give it this incredibly massive sound however the mix in 2002 was so compressed it almost hurt to listen to it sounded too loud The one thing that hurt Rush in the loudness wars was the fact that Rush is a band 
that has dynamics to their sound and to their style. If you do not have dynamics, 2112 becomes a slog to listen through for 21 minutes. There's no ebb and flow. The sound needs to be able to breathe and let the song be as the band intended it. The 2002 Vapor Trails album to me took a batch of amazing songs and almost made them unlistenable. And I'm not talking about the songs themselves. I'm talking about the actual recordings. And it wasn't until the 2013 remix that I was actually able to hear what they brought to these songs. And I'm so thankful that they were able to put out a remix because there's actually a lot of good songs on Vapor Trails. And I feel like it's a very underrated album from the band. So I'm going to go with One Little Victory. Yeah, Vapor Trails is definitely underrated. And I agree with you on the remix. The remix, to me, is a thousand times better than the original version. I thought it was too muddy. Just too much... I don't know. I don't even, I'm not a producer, so I don't know. It just sounds like they compressed every instrument and then compressed everything on top of that. And then when they were done, they said, oh, let's just compress it again for the hell of it. And then let's add a little bit more compression to that compress. It just felt squashed and it took the life out of these songs and hearing them where you can actually hear the bass and hear the dynamics between the three of them. You realize what a mix can do to an album. And I feel like that, was the takeaway from this that sometimes an album just needs to be in the right ears. And when I think about progressive, I think about what Steve Wilson brought to all the Jethro Tull albums. Mm -hmm. You hear the separation in the Steve Wilson remixes of Aqualung versus the original album. To me, it sounds like two different albums, the life that he brought to it. And I feel like that's what they did on 2013 with Vapor Trails. The 2002 CD of Vapor Trails is now the one CD by Rush I don't own because once I got the remix, I felt I, w I knew I would never put the original mix in again, except to say to somebody, hey, do you want to hear a major difference? Listen to this. Now listen to this. That's the only time I would ever put it in. And the reason this song stands out for me, it was really Rush's return because Neil tragically lost his wife yeah. and his daughter back in 1997 and Rush a lot of fans weren't sure if they were going to come back. I mean, the band themselves didn't know if they were going to come back. And this was their triumphant return. And when you saw Rush live on the Vapor Trails tour, this is the song they opened with. And it was just so emotional just to see Rush back on that stage. That's what this song reminds me of. And I think it's a great pick for your playlist. Awesome. Well, now you get to follow that up with track seven. You know, I love the fact that we're, in late era rush because I love so much of the music that came out after vapor trails, including this one from 2007 snakes and arrows, the way the wind blows. Now this is one for the diehards casual rush fans probably wouldn't know this song, but it's incredible. The contrast between the heavy verse and the beautiful chorus and Getty's vocals are so emotional on this song. And the lyrics are great, really helps the song stand out, much like the trees that are bent by the wind, our upbringing and our experiences in life affect how we grow. So we can only go the way the wind blows. And are you familiar with this one, Brian? Yeah, by all means. I love that album. And I actually have a few songs from that album in my bank right now. <laughs> but one thing we have not done thus far is go back to an album yet. Interesting. I wonder if we will. 
I'm going to say not yet. I think we're going to on side B, but for now, I think we're going to stop. I don't know. Maybe you'll change here, but I think that is a fantastic deep cut to pull for this mix because one little victory was a single. It was a tour opening song. So even if it wasn't a massive hit, like a Tom Sawyer 2112, it had its rotation in the band's live sets for an entire tour. Mm-hmm. So to me, that kind of puts it in the God, bad pun here, <laughs> limelight <laughs> for the rush family for an entire tour. So it's always going to be part of the conversation, but the way to wind blows was not a song. I, did they even play that outside of the snakes and arrows tour? They played it on the snakes and arrows tour for sure. I'm not sure if they played but it after that. There was a few songs from that album that kind of were relegated to that tour only. And that's a shame because there was some great stuff that came out of that album. And one thing Jerry and I discovered on the podcast when we were talking about snakes and arrows is that Alex wrote the entire record on acoustic guitar which changed the sound of the entire album. And it's just incredible. And when you listen back with that knowledge, you can hear the acoustic guitar kind of flowing through the whole album. And if he could play these songs acoustically, imagine how great they sound revved up and plugged in. That they do. And I think I'm going to, Man, we have been kind of bouncing over the late era now. So I want to bring us back a little bit, but not too far back. Because I feel like we hit a lot of the early 70s stuff. And then we hit a lot of the late aughts albums. So I want to go back to the 90s and I want to go to Counterparts. And hopefully no one criticizes me for my pick. However, I have to go with Animate easily. My favorite song on Counterparts, as much as I love the album, Animate just hits so hard. The longest song on the album. And yeah, I did it again. (laughs) An album Album, opening. Album opening track. I I mean, come on. I could, I've done four picks now and all four are album openers. And I promise you, I could go through the rest of my other six tonight and drop all album openers and still make a convincing argument for all of them. But to me, Animate is a massive song. They played it on a lot of tours past counterparts. It was on the Rush 40 tour. This song to me is a big part of their history. And I feel like the 90s is kind of the most overlooked decade for the band. Obviously, what you mentioned with Neil and the band in the later half of the 90s not even being active. And I feel like when people talk about Rush, it's always talked about in the 70s prog era, the 80s sound, and then everything they did after Vapor Trails. But I feel like the 90s almost gets kind of just lumped into the 80s, even though these albums were released in the nineties. They're still talked about in the eighties discussion. And I don't think they should be because these songs sonically sound different than the eighties output, than the seventies output, than the aughts output. They have a unique sound to them that honestly fits with the musical landscape in the nineties. However, because there was, I guess you'd say the least amount of output from the band during the decade, it often gets overlooked. So Animate from Counterparts. Brilliant, brilliant. And again, like you said, Counterparts is overlooked. The thing that stands out for me, two things. Number one, the guitars, because the guitars were back when I heard Counterparts. I mean, Presto is a great record. I love Presto, but it's still very keyboard heavy. And they pretty much tossed the keyboards aside for the most part. 
for counterparts. And Alex was back in the forefront. And that was a great thing, not only for him, but for the fans. And this song, the drums stand out to me, the drum beat. I mean, it starts with the drums only, which is a very rare thing for a Rush song to do. It might be the only one that starts out with just the drums. And Neil just shines on this one. That's a great pick, Brian. All right. You have one pick left for side A. So what do you got? Wow. I don't know what I'm going to do after animate. What should I do? Do I have time to think about it? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Because of the beauty of podcasting, you can think for the next 30 minutes and it'll only be about five seconds when we're done. (laughs) I'm going to go back to Rush's signals. And this might be one that people wouldn't consider, but I'm going to go with the analog kid. Yes. (laughs) You could go with subdivisions. You could go with new world man from this album, but this by far is my favorite track on the record, the bass, the guitar, the drums. They're so in sync on this song. That's the thing that stands out to me. They're just in lockstep and the lyrics are outstanding. The boy dreaming of going off into the city and doing big things, kind of a, an extension of subdivisions, so to speak. And uh, Brian, this has one of my favorite lyrics in it of all rush time. And it's too many hands on my time, which Neil sort of lifted from the stick song, too much time on my hands. hands. Oh yeah, you're right. Which I thought is a, is a cool rush factoid about the analog kid. I never knew that tidbit, but thank you so much for sharing it again. Not a top 40 hit. It reached 19, on the mainstream rock charts. But to me, you picked my favorite song from Signals. I I kid you not. (laughs) To me, Signals was a very keyboard-heavy album, but Alex's guitar solo in this song, to me, transcends all the keyboards, and it brings that rock sound into the synthy overall sheen that Signals has. The guitar cutting through in this song, to me, really shows, no, no, we're still here. Don't worry, we're, we're, we got you. We're still Rush. And to me, had they completely abandoned the guitar on this album, it might have been more of a divisive album for listeners, especially coming out of moving pictures. And you mentioned the top 40 hits. Did you know that Rush actually had a top 40 hit on Signals? One. I thought New World Man was their only top 40 hit, correct? That is correct. Okay, so that is it. That's it. I... I, I <laughs> How many people talk about New World Man in Rush's, as much as it's a great song, when you think about all the other songs, even that we've talked about so far, I feel like those songs have a bigger impact on Rush's legacy outside of their only top 40 hit. It's astonishing to me. Yeah. For them to have a top 40 hit and it be, what, their 30th best song? I mean, come on. (laughs) I mean... I'm not going to lie. I don't want to be mean, but it did not make my bank of songs for tonight. No, no, I love it, but there's some songs that had to make the cut. Totally understand. And closing out side A, because this is the one side that I get to close. I mentioned this at the top of the show. Ending aside, you got to go with a massive anthem from Rush. And one thing we have not dove into yet are some of their amazing instrumentals. And I have to, because we are recording this episode in October, right around my friend Dom's birthday, rest in peace. I want to go with the song that he introduced me to with Rush, our favorite song listening to all the time. Every time I hopped in his car, 
He'd be like, I hope you're ready for it because you know it's happening. And I'd get to hear the opening to La Villa Strangiato. The hair on my arms is standing up just talking about it. This song means so much to me. This song is a movie in music. There are no lyrics, but it tells such a story. The music that inspires the monsters section of the song was 1936's Powerhouse yep. by Raymond Scott. Warner Brothers musical director Carl Stalling used Powerhouse in Warner Brothers cartoon scores. So my buddy would always say to me every time this came on, dude, Rush was in the Looney Tunes. How amazing <laughs> is that? Like, I mean, come on. And to me, it added a bit of levity to such a powerful track. And Neil did joke one time that they spent more time working on this song than the entire Fly By Night album. Yep. So to me, when you're closing out a side, it's got to be something that is a statement. And I don't think there's maybe the biggest statement the band's ever made. And that might be a divisive comment, but La Villa Strangiato is my favorite Rush tune. And if this is the side I'm closing, I got to close it out with that. Yeah, I completely agree. Rush's greatest instrumental achievement, in my opinion, even over YYZ. And you mentioned Powerhouse. Did you know that Alex Lifeson had no idea that he had lifted that part of the song from the Raymond Scott song? Wait, what? He had no idea. Was that like subliminally just in his brain yep. from watching the cartoons growing up? Yep. And he found out years later when they got a letter from the family and it turned out that the statute of limitations had expired by that time. So wow. they didn't have to provide any royalties to the Raymond Scott family. But Rush, because they're the great guys that they are, they paid for it anyway. That's a class act right there, yeah. especially. That says everything you need to know about Rush right there. 100%, both musically and from a personal standpoint, closing outside A, which to me is a massive 10 tracks, kicking off with Tom Sawyer from Moving Pictures, the title track from 2112, all 20 plus minutes, Xanadu from A Farewell to Kings, Anthem from Fly By Night, Headlong Flight from Clockwork Angels, One Little Victory from Vapor Trails, The Way the Wind Blows from Snakes and Arrows, Animate from Counterparts, The Analog Kid from Signals, and La Villa Strangiato from Hemispheres. Head over to myweeklymixtape.com to hear all the songs we've discussed in this mix through the playlist embedded on the episode page. Now, Steve, before we flip things over to side B, even though Something for Nothing sadly ended its amazing podcast run, you've got some interesting news for both fans of the pod and Rush fans in general. Why don't you bring everybody up to speed? Yeah, well, we ended the podcast back in January. We did 175 episodes and had decided, you know how difficult it is to put a podcast together, Brian. It, it takes a lot of work. So we were doing it every week for three and a half years, and we decided it was time to, to hang them up. But we left a big guest on the table, and I never really was happy about that. So we decided to come back for a fall season, which premiered in October, and we did a few episodes, starting off with Neil's brother, Danny Peart, who joined us on the wow. podcast, and it was an incredible conversation. Fantastic. Now, let me ask you this. 
because of the fact that you came back for a fall season? Is this something where you might revisit it from time to time again? Maybe maybe the doors are still open. The doors are open. Uh, we haven't discussed whether we're going to do another season in the future, but I think we probably will. Maybe once a year we'll do four or five episodes when we get bored and uh, come back and entertain <laughs> the Rush fans. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to it. Now, as we turn our attention to side B, I have the distinct honor of kicking things off. We kicked off side A with a people-pleasing crowd anthem, and there was a lot of debate about a good Rush album opener with the Patreon listeners, and I'm going to kick off the side with a song that I feel is a mainstay for both hardcore Rush fans and even casual fans. So that, coupled with the fact that we have gone an entire side and we have not talked about permanent waves yet, so let's just go for it. The Spirit of Radio to kick off side B. It reached number 51 on the Billboard Hot 100. Again, astonished that this song wasn't a top 40 hit because it is such a, oh God, a hem, <laughs> radio anthem. I mean, that opening to me is so iconic. You hear that opening, like you immediately know what's going to happen. It's so big. It's used in sporting events. It's used everywhere. And it's just so ingrained in classic rock history. It's shocking that it wasn't a top 40 hit to me. And yes, I mean, look, the band has named compilations after it. They've probably played it more times than any song throughout their career because of the longevity Mm -hmm. of it. It is classic classic rush and i guess along with tom sawyer would be one of the ones where the hardcore fans go well of course but again we want this mix to represent both hardcore fans and people that are going well i don't know if i really know much about rush let me dive into this band so in order to dive into this band the spirit of radio would be a great way to kind of ease them into side two i think Love the pick, Brian. Love it. If I was going to pick the first song for side two, I was going to pick this one also. So I awesome. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Neil's love letter to the radio station he grew up listening to, CFNY in Toronto. And for me, this is just Rush's greatest live song because the crowd was so yeah. into it when they played this song, when the lights came up, and it was just Incredible. And a reggae section and a Rush song? Come on. (laughs) They got away with so much because of who they were. And I don't want to mention any other parts yet because I don't know if we're going to get to it or not. But something that immediately comes to mind is the rap in Roll the Bones. Roll the Bones. It's like, wait a minute. Now they're throwing hip hop into the mix. (laughs) And somehow in true Rush fashion, they were able to do it where it did not come across as a mockery. It came across as a humble homage, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term. Same thing with the reggae part in the spirit of radio. That could have easily come across with a mocking tone. But they played it with such pizzazz in that part of the song. It just works. And they do it as well as pretty much any damn reggae band I know, too. Yeah, it really is amazing. And you had to go to Permanent Waves eventually, right? Of course. (laughs) The fact that we didn't was a crime. You could pick any song from Permanent Waves. And there's actually still a couple albums we haven't touched on yet, so we'll see if we get to those. But Steve, we're back to you for track two. All right, track two. I'm going to disappoint you, Brian. I'm going to go back to an album we already talked about. It had to happen, though, right, right, didn't it? Of course. You could pick any song from Moving Pictures and put it on this mixtape and not go wrong. 
But for me, my favorite Rush song of all time is Red Barchetta. Nice. This is Rush at its cinematic best. You are in that car. You're driving across the one-lane bridge. The wind is in your hair. Rush is able to match the music with the lyrics better than any band that I can think of. And this song is just a masterpiece. Just is. You said it best. You can pick any song from Moving Pictures. We could have literally just read through tracks one through seven of Side A for this mixtape and just gone straight from Tom Sawyer to Vital Signs. And there would be Rush fans out there going, I get it. (laughs) Because they're all classic tracks, every one of them. And that's why they played the album in its entirety. Because at the end of the day, they were just playing the hits, if you want to call it that. What would be the deepest cut for moving pictures if you would even call it that? The camera eye, maybe? Just because of its length and less radio airplay? Yeah, I would say probably the camera eye would be the song that would be least known by casual Rush fans. All right. Well, I'm going to, from there, I don't want to follow up a second album twice. Okay. So let's go to an album we haven't touched on yet. And mm, this is tough because... Again, I'm going outside of my album opening track here, but the album opening track for this album is so good. But they also know how to close out albums with authority. And look, it's Getty Lee's favorite song to play live. So I'm going to go with Working Man from their self-titled. We got to get John Rutsey into the conversation somehow. And to me, Working Man, it's got such a groove to it. And it's so unique in the Rush catalog that it made the transition from John Rutsey into the Neil Peart years seamlessly because they played it throughout a lot of tours. It's one of the few pulls, the few takeaways from the self-titled album that continued into the band's legacy. So I feel like it's an important song for the band, but I can understand where it could be divisive to the fact that it's a non-Neil track, but I still love it regardless. Yeah. And that guitar solo. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, Alex's guitar solo on that song is one of his best, and it's was done when he was, what, 21 years old? It's crazy. It made Guitar World's list of 100 greatest guitar solos ever. And the live versions of Working Man on the later albums that Neil plays on, he adds so much to the song. Again, nothing against John Rutsey, but he no. adds so much to the song, and it was a staple at the live shows. Rush fans love Working Man. Working Man's not, in my top 20 Rush songs. I love it, but I don't love it as much as I love other songs. But most Rush fans would want that in this mixtape, and I'm glad you put it on there. All right, we're back to you now for track four. All right, I feel like we've got to go to Grace Under Pressure at some point. We've got to. One of Rush's most underrated albums, in my opinion. And I'm going to go with Red Sector A. The lyrics, again, it's cinematic kind of like Red Barchetta in a way, but this is a dark song. The lyrics evoke the concentration camps of the Holocaust. It was inspired in part by Getty Lee's mother's accounts of her experience there. She was in the concentration camps, which is hard to believe. And again, the music fits the subject matter so perfectly. Getty's vocals, the emotion in his voice, because it means so much to him, the subject matter and just the biting guitars and 
the drums. I mean, it's really incredible and emotional and has to be in my mixtape. Love the track. I'm shocked we got this far without talking about Grace Under Pressure because I think I completely agree with you. I mean, I think it's like, again, album openers. I'm sorry. I apologize. I know I keep going to that, but (laughs) distant early warning. Great one. This album to me, I feel like maybe the music landscape was changing around Rush and this album almost got lost in the the sauce at the time Mm -hmm. because when you say it is under it's truly an underrated album that i feel like kind of got swallowed up in everything that was happening in 1984 and then i think that continues into 85's power windows this was kind of this different time for the band that really i feel like a lot of bands around 84 85 and 86 kind of all started going with I don't want to say a similar sound because that sounds like I'm trying to take away from it, but I've always kind of likened it to the Phil Collins effect where artists that never really messed around with synth like Eric Clapton and the behind the sun album started just playing around with synth. And I feel like because there was so much synth out there, these albums kind of got lost in that a little bit. Well, yeah. And the other thing is a lot of Rush fans dropped off around this time. Good point. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Rush fans dropped out after Signals. We've talked to so many Rush fans who are just died in the wool 70s guys. And when Signals came out and those uh, synths on subdivisions, they just shut it off and tossed it aside wow. and were gone forever. And the great thing about our podcast is that we brought a lot of those people back. We talked about all the albums of the synth era and, and suck some fans back in. And we're kind of proud of that. <laughs> As you should be, because I'm about to go into another song that would fall into that category. Oh, good. And it's another album we haven't talked about. And <laughs> oh, crap, <laughs> it's an album opener. Oh, no. <sighs> but kidding aside, I kind of have to, because at this point in my life, I'm 11, 12, 13 years old, and I am not getting as much music from the radio as I am from MTV. And Show Don't Tell was a song around the time that was being played in heavy rotation on MTV. It's leaning very heavy into the synth at this point. I mean, I don't want to say it's guitar less because the guitar kind of lives and breathes through the verses. But when you get to the chorus, that synth sound really is propped up on a mantle for this song. So it's kind of this cross between the two. I was debating between Show Don't Tell and Roll the Bones, and I almost went with Roll the Bones just to not put an album opener in there, but <laughs> at the end of the day, I love both tracks, and it was more of a coin flip than anything else. Yeah, I love the pick. Presto is a, such an underrated record. It's got a very bright sound to it. That's probably the heaviest track on that record. It makes sense for them to bring it up to the forefront as the first track. Completely agree, and that's probably why I gravitated to it so much. I love the pick. I think it's great. I thought you were going to go with Dreamline, honestly. Well, we still have a few songs left, so who knows? (laughs) (laughs) 91 was such a unique time in music because you think about that meme that has all the cassettes that were released within like six weeks of 1991, and it was Pearl Jam's 10 Metallica's Black Album and Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusions 1 and 2 and the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic and Roll the Bones was right in that time too. Yeah. And you think about all those albums and where music was going at that point. To me, between 89 and 93, rock music really 
kind of stripped down a lot. Yeah. And a lot of the hair bands and it, that that all got stripped down into that grunge sound, very basic. And I feel like Rush didn't say, let's take away what we're doing. I feel like they said, let's bring back some of the guitar elements for counterparts. Not so much to say they want to fit in with what's going on currently in the music scene, but they were always in tune with where the music scene was headed. Well, now I should know this, but Show Don't Tell kind of ends with a fade, right? Da, 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 yep, da, yep. Da, you know, it kind of fades out. So I think we can go a little a little lighter with the opening on the next track on our mixtape. And I'm going to go to Power Windows and go with Manhattan Project. Nice. Can you tell that Cinematic Rush is some of my favorite Rush? Yeah. What other band can write a song about the Manhattan Project and have it be <laughs> perfect? Again, you're on the flight of the Enola Gay as they're dropping the bomb, and you're there when they're building this thing. The song tells the story so perfectly and so succinctly. Neil was just so great at taking a few words and saying so much with so few words. And this song builds as it goes, and Power Windows just doesn't get the love it deserves, and I want to give it some love. So Manhattan Project is next. And this song doesn't get the love it deserves because it was never released as a single, but it's still charted regardless of that. So to me, the Rush fans spoke in this regard Mm -hmm. because they made this song chart, even though the label did not put it out as a single. Yeah. And I'm actually surprised because a lot of people, when they talk about power windows, they go right to the big money. Mm -hmm. I kind of applaud the pick here. (laughs) Well, thank you. And Coming out of that, now I'm 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 in another coin flip moment here because I want to bounce back to the later era because we haven't dipped into it at all on this side. All right, I said I was leaning towards this song when we were talking about Show Don't Tell, so I'm going to lean into it. This is a song we talked about when I visited Something for Nothing and we talked about deeper cuts from the band. And my criteria for a rush deep cut was I used the live approach. Okay. And the less a song was played live. Right, right, right. Was where it would sit in their deep cuts, in my opinion. And Clockwork Angels didn't get enough love because it was the shortest tenure of an album before the band ended right. its run. So to me, I could pick any song off Clockwork Angels and it would work perfectly. But I want to go with, to me, one of the heaviest songs in Rush's entire catalog, which I think is a nice yin and yang from the Manhattan Project, into BU2B. Wow, okay. And my reason, Rush was attuned to what was happening musically. Listen to bands like Tool that were popular in the 2000s and in the 2010s, and still to this day, Tool's very popular. Rush made a Tool song Better than Tool. (laughs) That riff is massive. I love Tool. That riff is massive. It is so huge. And then Getty's bass line during the breakdown is absolute insanity. And to me, I'm honestly shocked the band didn't acknowledge this one on the R40 tour. Because I think it's a classic Rush track. So... In regards of this mix, it's probably a deeper cut. And I don't know how Rush fans are going to feel over the fact that we have two 
Clockwork Angels songs out of 20 right now. Yeah. But Headlong Flight and B-U-2-B to me are both, they should be included in this conversation. I love them both. Yeah, I can't disagree. I mean, I'm never going to disagree with any Rush song you add to a playlist, so I'm happy with it. This album, like I said, it's a perfect ending to a perfect career. I was going to go with The Garden later, but I don't think we could put three Clockwork Angels songs on our mixtape. That would be a little rough. <laughs> But The Garden, again, is a great track. Every track of Clockwork Angels is amazing. So I think it's a great pick. Well, we are back to you now for track eight. We're counting down to the final stretch here. Wow. I don't know what I'm going to do. Jeez, that's a tough one to come out of. Give me a second here. You know what? I think I want to go back to something older, Brian. I got to go all the way back to Fly okay. By Night again. I, I know we've dipped Ooh, into it okay. already, but I'm going to go with By Tour and the Snow Dog. this is rush's first true progressive rock song in my opinion i mean anthem's a great song off that record but this is rush getting into the prog rock and getting into it hard howard unger leader their road manager at the time later became their lighting director he came up with the title at a party there were two dogs and one was a biter so he named it by tour And one was a white dog, and they named it the Snow Dog. And that's what Neil took to create this epic story of Bytor and the Snow Dog. And it's just genius. I mean, this song is incredible. The guitar, bass, and drums, everything is just incredible. And Alex's solo, this might be one of his best solos ever, after Limelight, in my opinion. It's so great. The song's so bizarre. The lyrics are so weird. And the musicianship is brilliant. And it's got to be on my mixtape somewhere. Absolutely love Bytor <laughs> and the Snow Dog. Again, you don't get a 2112 without this song. You don't get the Fountains of Lamneth, the second side of Caress of Steel. This was the dipping their toe in the progressive waters mm. to see what their fans were willing to accept of Rush on fly by night because this was kind of a new sound for the band people that bought 1974 self-titled album were getting a little bit of a different flavor yeah. here by tour and the snow dogs was the band's statement saying hey if this works with the rush fan base we could take this to new heights as we move forward and i feel like that's what yeah they did. oh absolutely and this was the precursor like you said to 2112 if if not for this song 2112 never happens right and i think That is where I'm going to go with my last pick of the night. I want to go back to 2112 again. I feel like we've mentioned a couple of albums twice tonight. And I feel like even though there's only a finite number of songs on 2112, six total, I have to go with a second one from it because it's just so damn amazing. And I'm going to go with a passage to Bangkok, the opening track on side B that riff, there's just something about it that to me, it's one of the most underrated songs in the band's catalog. It wasn't a massive hit. It obviously gets overshadowed from 2112, but to me, it incorporates just a little bit of what you heard on 1974's self-titled album and brings it into the Neil Peart era. And it's the bluesiest rock riff from Alex, I think, in the Neil era. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. That's a fantastic pick. I thought you were going to say something for nothing. <laughs> oh, man, now I feel bad for your show. I should have went with something for nothing. I'm sorry. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do for this last track. I didn't think I was going to have the last track. Wow. There's no pressure at all. I mean, honestly, first, I want to apologize because you almost don't want to go back to Clockwork Angels a third time. The Garden would be a perfect yeah. closer. Something for Nothing being the name for your show would be a perfect closer. So I feel like I've dropped two bombs on you there, not purposely, and I apologize no, for No, no, it's okay. And the other thing is we've hit on just about every song that Rush used to end their sets with. Tom Sawyer, The Spirit of Radio, Working Man. La Villa Strangiato, we covered all of that. So what can we end this mixtape with? And I think I'm going to go back to Presto again of all albums. And I'm going to go really? with the final song on Presto, which is Available Light. It's a deep track. If you're a casual Rush fan, I implore you to go to Spotify and listen to this song because this is Getty Lee at his vocal peak it starts out with piano mm. and it's just an incredible song i mean i can't say enough about it neil's lyrics are brilliant and it just builds as it goes and neil's drums on this particular track he hits the drums so hard and the garden which has a great solo by alex this one rivals it so I feel like this is a good alternative to the garden. And I'm going to go with available light to wrap this mixtape up. Now I'm going to ask you a question, but I don't think this song was ever even played live. It was not was played it? live and it's a shame. I was just going to say, uh, I don't know. I guess they just didn't bring a piano with them on tour. Can you imagine <laughs> them rolling out a white, baby grand piano and Getty just getting up there and playing the piano and singing. How great would that have been? I think that would have been a moment. <laughs> I think that would have been massive. I love it. What a great pick. And it really, I think a lot of bigger, deeper, hardcore rush fans are going to respect that one for the fact that it is something that is only relegated to studio albums. So I think it offers a little bit of something for everyone. And the there. thing we found out talking about this on our podcast is fans love this song. It's a fan favorite. It's not publicized that it's a fan favorite, but it absolutely is. And I think diehard Rush fans and even casual fans who hadn't heard it yet will listen to this and love it. I'm hoping they think that for both sides of this playlist. However, side B kicked off with the spirit of radio from Permanent Waves, Red Barchetta from Moving Pictures, Working Man from their self-titled 1974 album, Red Sector A from Grace Under Pressure, Show Don't Tell from Presto, Manhattan Project from Power Windows, BU2B from Clockwork Angels, By Tour and the Snow Dog from Fly By Night, a Passage to Bangkok from 2112, and Available Light from Presto. Head over to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to hear all the songs we've discussed in this mix through the playlist embedded on the episode page. Now, Steve, obviously you had the run of shows. People are probably going to go from <laughs> this and say, you know what, I got to go back and dive into all 170 now, 79 right. episodes of Something for Nothing. Where can they find that and connect with you? 
Well, we are on Podbean. That is our host, but you can find us on any podcast app that you have, Spotify, Apple, pretty much any podcast platform. You can find us on Twitter. You can talk to us there. We're at Rush Fancast on Instagram. Jerry posts great photos at the Rushcast. And uh, you can email us at therushcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know what you think of the podcast. And Brian, thanks so much for having me today. My absolute pleasure. My favorite Rushcast by far. And I think I could safely say if you and I did a volume two of this mixtape, we'd have no problem coming up with another 20. Oh, no problem at all. We left out some great albums. Hold Your Fire, we didn't touch. Roll the Bones, we didn't touch. Test for Echo, we didn't touch. If you're out there listening and you have a song you would have added to this mixtape, why don't you send me a message at My Weekly Mixtape on social media or email me at myweeklymixtape at gmail.com and let us know what you would add to this mix. Maybe it's something we'll consider in volume two. Steve, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking Rush with you. Had a great time tonight, man. I had an incredible time, Brian. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Remember, you can find My Weekly Mixtape at all the social media haunts at my Weekly Mixtape. You can also head to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to check out the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or by becoming a Patreon Mixtaper at Patreon.com forward slash My Weekly Mixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.